The goal of this podcast is to get back to basics. We are the Opioid ERAS Subcommittee and part of the SGO Education Committee. We have previously addressed topics including bowel prep, pain management, and VTE prophylaxis. For this latest installment, we have decided to go back to the beginning and return to key concepts of enhanced recovery after surgery. ERAS, why do we do it? We know that there are multiple components to a typical ERAS bundle, and they have traditionally included elements of avoiding starvation, maintaining euvolemia, minimizing opiates, early ambulation, and preventing surgical site infections. Since the ERAS guidelines for gynecologic oncology were published in 2016, there have been ongoing discussions regarding implementation and evaluation of metrics. But what are the guiding principles? In the next 20 minutes, our working group discussants will address key elements of ERAS and why we do it. First is Dr. Millie Koretz. As Dr. Chen stated, ERAS involves a multifaceted approach to minimize morbidity, promote recovery, and decrease length of hospital stay. One important piece of this care plan is minimizing starvation and maximizing nutrition with achievement of early adequate post-operative dietary intake. At the same time, another goal includes minimizing post-operative nausea and vomiting. It is known that pre-existing nutritional status is an important factor for post-operative outcomes and recovery in our population of patients who are already at higher than average risk for complications based on disease, patient, and surgical factors. Additionally, we know that nutritional status is an established predictor of perioperative morbidity and mortality, and that insulin resistance and hyperglycemia are also independent risk factors for perioperative complications. Studies have shown that older age and female patients are more likely to be at risk for perioperative malnutrition, which may set them up for potentially avoidable poor outcomes. The body's stress response to surgery can create a catabolic state where the body's energy is being spent, while healing from surgery necessitates anabolism, where the body undergoes repair and rebuilding. In order to adequately facilitate postoperative healing, balance of these states must be managed. Perioperative catabolism can weaken the immune response, reduce muscle strength, prolong wound healing, and prolong postoperative fatigue. It may also be associated with worsened survival. Prolonged postoperative fasting has long been held a tenet used to avoid aspiration during induction of general anesthesia, but it is of uncertain benefit. On the other hand, prolonged fasting states are known to result in increased insulin resistance, hyperglycemia, catabolism, muscle breakdown, and possibly electrolyte imbalance or dehydration, which can clearly negatively impact surgical recovery. Studies have demonstrated a reduction of fasting time to clear liquids up to two hours preoperatively does not increase gastric volume, reduce pH of stomach contents, nor is this associated with increased rates of complication. Of note, this may not be generalizable to patients with delayed emptying for reasons of gastroparesis, carcinomatosis, or other physiologic changes. In addition to minimizing fasting, individualized recommendations for preoperative carbohydrate loading can improve postoperative outcomes. The mechanism for this involves decreased insulin resistance and subsequent hyperglycemia, and possibly therefore a decreased rate of downstream complications. Studies have shown preoperative carbohydrate loading and avoidance of prolonged fasting improves symptoms such as hunger and anxiety, and improves muscle function postoperatively, and decreases time to resumption of normal bowel function and adequate postoperative dietary intake. With respect to postoperative feeding, 
We have already reviewed that postoperative nutritional requirements are higher to promote the anabolism that is necessary for healing. Regular diet in the first 24 hours after surgery has been shown to be associated with decreased length of stay, decreased time to first flatus, and no increase in complications, including anastomotic leak, wound, or pulmonary complications. Early feeding has been shown to be associated with a higher rate of nausea, though no subsequent increase in vomiting or NG tube placement. Postoperative nutritional supplementation and interventions aim to prevent catabolism and support rehabilitation and wound healing. Next is Dr. Andres Ladani to address fluid management. Optimal perioperative fluid management is a critical component of ERAS pathways. From the physiologic perspective, the main goals during the intraoperative phase are to maintain central euvolemia and to avoid excess salt and water administration. To best achieve this, an individualized fluid management plan should be created with taking into consideration both individual and surgical risk factors. Typically, either a zero balance or a goal-directed fluid therapy approach can help to accomplish these goals. Modern intraoperative fluid management strategies discourage compensating for what was previously called third space fluid losses. This is because of our improved understanding of the physiologic consequences of intraoperative hypervolemia, including atrial natriuretic peptide-induced endothelial damage with subsequent increase of vascular permeability. What this means is that too much fluids leads to an increase in AMP, which then leads to worsening third spacing, what we are trying to avoid. Third spacing leads to ELOS edema and a slower patient recovery. In several large meta-analysis, goal-directed fluid therapy was shown to be superior to traditional fixed volume or liberal fluid approaches and reduced complications from major surgeries by half. In the post-operative period, low-risk patients may immediately return to oral fluid intake. If maintenance fluid is required, a reduced salt solution is recommended due to the diminished ability to excrete sodium and chloride postoperatively. High-risk patients may need to continue goal-directed fluid therapy until clinical improvement. Permissive oliguria should be tolerated as supplemental intravenous fluids or diuretics don't improve renal function or protect against acute kidney injury. Dr. Aaron Hickey will be summarizing pain management goals. Analgesia may be the first facet of ERAS that comes to mind for many, and it is an important one. This is because pain is a post-operative complication with a high impact on the patient, the health system, and society. ERAS principles of pain management aim to reduce pain and improve patient function while limiting harmful effects of medications like nausea, constipation, sedation, and opioid dependence. Meyer and others have shown that utilizing non-opioid medications within a post-operative analgesia pathway improves functional patient-related outcomes like fatigue, walking, and other physical and effective measures without worsening pain scores or readmission after gynecologic surgery. ERAS addresses pain with a multimodal, opioid-sparing, post-operative analgesia approach. This multimodal approach relies on use of non-opioid adjunctive medications for their synergism and different mechanisms of blocking pain sensation, perception, and modulation. Many ERAS protocols include pre- and or post-operative doses of oral acetaminophen, NSAIDs if they're not contraindicated in the patient, the selective COX-2 inhibitor celecoxib, and gabapentin. Ensuring an opioid-sparing, multimodal, effective analgesia approach that limits medication adverse effects begins well before surgery and touches multiple points of the ERAS process. For example, providing structured, preoperative education has been associated with reduced pain, nausea, and length of stay. 
Anesthetic protocols are also a staple of ensuring optimal intraoperative and postoperative pain and nausea control. Strategies to limit nausea and vomiting post-surgery are routine post-op nausea and vomiting prophylaxis with at least two antiemetic agents, use of anesthetics with a favorable nausea and vomiting risk like propofol, and avoiding medications with emetic risk like nitrous oxide. Some centers may consider use of IV lidocaine or ketamine, which have shown improvements in postoperative pain, and short-acting inhaled anesthetics like sevoflurane to limit residual anesthetic effects. Adjunctive pain approaches may also involve non-systemic pain control with incisional anesthetic injection of bupivacaine or alternative methods like thoracic epidurals and transversus abdominis plane blocks, which are frequently debated but have failed to show meaningful improvements over local injection of anesthetics. Use of non-opioid adjunctive medications have largely been shown to reduce opioid requirements and thus support an opioid-sparing approach. Short-acting oral and IV opioids may be required in the immediate inpatient postoperative period, but avoidance of outpatient opioid prescriptions, especially in the long term, should be our goal. In fact, a prospective study of opioid use in over 3,000 surgery patients after discharge indicates that post-discharge opioids may not even be needed by patients. For more information on perioperative pain management, please refer to our SGO On The Go podcast from April 2021. The principle of early ambulation can improve pulmonary function, bowel function, and decrease venous thromboembolism, here discussed by Dr. Matt Wagar. The development of venous thromboembolism is driven by three main factors, known as Virchow's triad. Venous stasis, endothelial injury, and hypercoagulability are all contributors to the development of VTE and for the most part, universally present in the gynecologic oncology population. Tumor cells overexpress tissue factor, which in turn drives a hypercoagulable state through activation of the coagulation cascade. Gynecologic malignancies often require a combination of surgical intervention and chemotherapy for treatment, both of which increase the risk of VTE five to six-fold due to the disruption of vascular endothelium. Still, the prolonged immobilization required for abdominal pelvic surgery contributes to venous stasis and can be potentiated with ongoing immobilization in the early postoperative period. Given the contribution of immobilization to the development of VTE, interventions aimed at preventing VTE should begin before the planned operation and ideally before the induction of anesthesia. Dual modality therapy with mechanical prophylaxis utilizing sequential compression devices and chemoprophylaxis utilizing unfractionated heparin is preferred to either intervention alone. Prior to initiation of a neuromuscular blockade, application of sequential compression devices improves central venous return and prevents venous stasis in the lower extremities. Additionally, administration of unfractionated heparin subcutaneously prior to the induction of anesthesia allows for mitigation of clot formation that can be potentiated by venous stasis and the release of tissue factor associated with tissue trauma from procedural intervention. These interventions are implemented prior to surgery to prevent the development of VTE rather than mitigating the propagation of a VTE that could form during surgery without either of these modalities. The most concerning complication of anticoagulation in the setting of neuraxial anesthesia is the development of an epidural hematoma and subsequent neurologic compromise secondary to compression of the spinal cord and nerve roots. Recommendations from the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine Note that administration of anticoagulant medications should be timed around removal. Venous thromboembolism within the postoperative period portends a worse 12-month mortality, and cancer patients diagnosed with perioperative VTE 
are two to three times more likely to die in the immediate postoperative period compared to patients undergoing similar surgeries for benign indications. The approach to reducing this risk has similarly fallen on dual modality interventions with both mechanical and chemoprophylaxis. Chemoprophylaxis with unfractionated heparin, low molecular weight heparin, or direct oral anticoagulants, also known as DOACs, may all address the hypercoagulable state potentiated by tumor cells and the subsequent coagulation cascade. For many patients undergoing laparotomy, extended chemoprophylaxis may be warranted with low molecular weight heparin or DOACs. For more information on venous thromboembolism risk management, please refer to our SGO on the Go podcast from July 2021. Finally, Dr. Jeannie Chern will address surgical site infection mitigation in the ERAS bundle. One of the major goals of ERAS is to reduce postoperative infections, as this is associated with a 3% mortality rate, prolonged hospitalization, increased rate of readmission, and long-term disability. Bundled interventions such as SSI bundles or surgical site infection bundles can optimally reduce these morbidities. This incorporates a multimodal approach that includes interventions in the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative settings. Historically, in preparing for ovarian cancer cytoreductive surgery, bowel preparations with mechanical bowel preps were performed to decrease the stool burden, which would decrease the risk of infection related to resection and anastomosis. However, other studies, including one from Mayo, demonstrate that there is no increase in anastomotic leak rate or postoperative pelvic infection without implementing bowel preparation. Additionally, other studies have shown the lack of benefit in bowel preparations in gynecologic surgery, for example, in MIS, and in laparotomy cases for malignancy, including bowel resections. One consideration is the use of oral antibiotic prep, in which retrospective studies have suggested that in combination with mechanical bowel prep may be beneficial. This may be considered and limited to planned colon resections. As one can imagine, this practice is controversial, and in most gynecologic surgeries, bowel preparations can be omitted. For more information, please refer to our SGO On The Go podcast from September 2020. This concept of decreasing surgical infection may be more reliant in other preventative measures that are included in most surgical site infection bundles, which includes a CDC recommendation that before surgery, patients shower or bathe with antiseptic agents such as chlorhexidine gluconate or CHG. This is intended to decrease the amount of bacterial flora present on the skin before skin incision. It has been shown that implementation of preoperative showering with 4% chlorhexidine gluconate as part of the perioperative bundle among patients undergoing open uterine or ovarian cancer surgery lowers SSIs from 6% to 1.1%. The SSI bundle also incorporates the use of chlorhexidine wipes for preoperative skin preparation and preoperative antibiotics. A prospective study looked at the combination of cepazolin and metronidazole for all hysterectomy patients with redosing of cefazolin every four hours per Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines, further reduced SSIs. In patients that have a severe beta-lactam allergy, clindamycin and gentamicin was administered. Additionally, intraoperative vaginal chlorhexidine preparation was performed. In one study, there was a 58% reduction of SSIs following hysterectomy and reduction in pelvic infection and reduction in readmission rates. Intraoperative interventions included in SSI bundles consist of a separate closing tray and staff changes of gloves for fascia and skin closure also supported decrease in infection rates. Dressing removals after 24 to 48 hours after surgery have also been shown to improve postoperative outcomes. Other 
considerations include limiting or avoiding intraperitoneal drains if possible, given the data demonstrating their use and decreased risk of infection is limited. There is evidence that drain biofilm colonization can be detected as early as two hours after placement. They may be considered harmful by introducing a foreign body conduit for bacteria to travel into a surgical wound. Similarly, utilizing bladder catheters for the shortest duration necessary to minimize a source of infection. Lastly, intraoperative hypothermia has been linked to an increased risk of surgical site infections. ERAS Pathways and CDC endorses maintaining perioperative normothermia. This can be achieved by using forced air blankets, such as bear hugger, underbody warming mattresses, and warmed IV fluid administration. In a study that compared intraoperative warming only versus before and after warming for patients undergoing major abdominal surgery, the rate of infection was decreased by half among those who were normal thermic. SSI reduction bundles have demonstrated decreased risk of developing a surgical site infection when done in a multimodal fashion. In conclusion, the goals of ERAS are to minimize surgical stress by implementing a combination of elements which, when bundled together, form a comprehensive perioperative management program. Thanks to all of the working group members, including Dr. Amanika Kumar, who helped edit our script, we recognize that there are continuous changes in guidelines and management strategies. For more dialogue, please join ongoing discussion groups at the SGO ConnectEd website. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.